this morning. It's taken from Mark 14, verses 66 to 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she again said to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Well, as we continue our journey through the book of Mark, we reach this passage that is one of the most poignant and heart-wrenching in the entire book, certainly for me it is. You see here Peter's denial of Jesus, his rabbi and Lord that he's followed for the last three, three and a half years. Just a few hours before, he had declared his absolute commitment to never deny Jesus, even if everybody else turned away. If he was the only one, he would never deny Jesus. And yet here we see him become terrified of a little servant girl. And he denies Jesus three times. He utterly fails. I'm deeply intrigued, though, as I think about Peter's life, by the contrast between the Peter we see here and the one we see approximately six weeks later, maybe eight weeks later, not very long. In chapter 4 of the book of Acts, let me read verses 8 and following, Acts 4. As Peter faces the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you. In good health, there is salvation in no one else. And in 18, as they are told not to share this faith, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
I don't know about you, but that's mind-boggling, that change in Peter. How did the weak denier, the betrayer of Jesus of Mark 14 become the bold proclaimer of Jesus? Only a few weeks later of Acts chapter 4. This incident of Peter's denial is recorded in all four Gospels. It's one of the few incidents that all four Gospel writers retell. And most scholars believe that the book we're looking at, the book of Mark, though written by Mark, was essentially the story of Peter. That Peter told Mark about what happened. And so Peter himself highlights his betrayal. Peter himself wants us to know him as the betrayer, as the denier of Jesus. He wants us to see him as that kind of failure. Why is this so important for Peter to have us know? I think it's because Peter knew this was a significant, in fact, one of the most significant events in his life. He wants us to know that he had to try and fail. That is, that he had to be broken, broken of self-effort, to be able to become the man that Jesus created him to be. And the same is true for every one of us in this room. (laughs) We must be broken to have our hearts changed, to learn to love Jesus first in our hearts and lives. You see, for each of us, brokenness is a gift from God. Pray with me. Lord, as we come to this passage, as we see Peter so laid out as a failure, as a betrayer of you, we must confess, if we're honest at all, we see ourselves in Peter. We, too, are betrayers of you and many little ways, some in major ways, but we love other things more than we love you. But Lord, as we look at how his heart was changed, may our hearts move to become more aligned with yours. Use your word today by the power of your spirit to transform us that we might be more the Peter of Acts 4 and less and less the Peter of Mark 14. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look first at the process of denial. What was going on in Peter as he denied Jesus three times? Well, let's walk through these three denials. Number one is in verse 66 and following. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls and the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. Now, I want you to notice that at least Peter's there, right? I mean, at least he shows up at the fire. He's in the courtyard of the high priest as the trial's going up. Going on upstairs, he can see what's going on. He's watching as he's warming himself. But where are the other disciples? They're not there. Peter loves Jesus. 
he just doesn't love him first. The girl confronts him. This little girl, she's been around, she's seen him, and she's just talking to him directly at this point. And in this first denial, you see that she looks intently at him. Do you know that feeling? You know you've blown it, or you're caught, you feel caught, you don't want to be trapped, you feel exposed, and at this point, all of a sudden, she sees him, and it's like she's looking right through him, and he denies what she says. You are with Jesus the Nazarene. She, she's a servant girl of the high priest. She's been around. She's seen him with Jesus. And he says, no way. <laughs> he uses two different words for no. The first one is one that's intellectual. He says, I don't know what you're talking about intellectually. And the second word is to know personally. He says, I don't have any personal knowledge of this. I don't know anything about this situation. You got the wrong guy. (laughs) It's not me. He denies that he knows anything about what's going on, which is a little bit crazy because why in the world would he be standing inside the courtyard of the high priest, warming himself by the fire? Did he just happen by and think, oh, there's a nice cozy fire? I don't think so. There's no reason he would be there except because Jesus is there. But he, as he feels exposed, as he feels caught, he doesn't know what to do, so he denies. And in denial number one, it's as if he closes his eyes. No, I don't know anything. I I didn't see any. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) He distances himself from the whole situation. And then he moves out from the group. He moves into the portico where he can still see the fire and see Jesus upstairs. But he he hopes he's more out of sight. He's out of the firelight at this point to avoid more confrontation. Aren't we like Peter sometimes when we're afraid of being caught or we feel exposed? We feel like somebody's seeing and we just feel like we need to pretend like we don't know that if maybe if we plead ignorance, ignorance is bliss, right? then we won't be responsible. We won't be caught. I don't really know what you're talking about. (laughs) I just came to get warm by the fire. But there's a progression to his denials. As first, he denies knowing anything about the situation. Then the servant girl looks at him and and begins to talk to the bystanders. And says, no, no, this, he is, he's one of them. He thinks he's hiding in the portico, but she can still see him. And she talks to the others there and says, he's one of them. But again, verse 70, he denied it. You see the struggle in Peter. He's wanting to stay and stay close to Jesus and find out what's going on. Maybe hopeful that Jesus will suddenly, you know, tear his shirt open and say, yes, I am the Messiah, and take over. But instead, it's not happening. All of a sudden, it's not Jesus who's on trial, it's Peter who's on trial. Now he's closing his ears. Now he's shutting his ears. Ah, I I won't hear truth. I'm not going to hear this. I'm not one of them. No, it's not me. And then in the third denial, first he moves from, I don't know anything about the situation, to, 
I'm not one of his followers. And now in the third denial, he completely denies Jesus specifically. Verse 70 again, after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean too. We're told another gospel, they recognized his accent. Of course, why would you be here? You're obviously one of them. But he began to curse and to swear. I do not know this man you're talking about. His denial was to call down a curse on himself. The Description here, probably what he said is something like this. May God curse me if I'm not telling the truth. (laughs) Wow. Peter, are you really saying that about yourself? You're that afraid of these few little bystanders that you are denying him and willing to call down a curse on yourself? And then to swear was to swear almost always in the scripture. It's used to swear by something, to swear by God or by the temple I swear in the name of God, I swear by the temple of God, the most holy place, that what I'm telling you is the truth. I am not lying. And yet he's lying through his teeth. What is going on in the heart of Peter that he's hardened his heart this much? He's gone from closing his eyes to closing his ears, and now his heart towards Jesus is just hard as a rock. I've asked Annalise Armstrong, she wrote a poem about this passage, and I've asked her to come up and share it with us. Annalise. Sticks hit the drum, beat. It's a battle cry. The purr of caged birds' wings as it learns to fly. Battle cry, battle cry, let me hear your trumpets. Let's march around Jericho until the walls come tumbling. I was expecting to hear soldiers marching left, right, left, Uniformed in purpose and strength, but the sound now is water dripping. Drip, 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 drip. It's the sound of children skipping and a blind man stumbling, a woman walking with a cane, a cavalry of vagabonds. I don't hear the battle cry. That night, you said I would betray you. I swore I wouldn't. I would stand right beside you. And so when Judas kissed you and they tried to take you, I drew my sword. I tried to defend you, but you... You walked away with them. And if I knew then what I know now, I would have known the fight was not of the sword, but the sword was all I had, all I knew. That night you said I would betray you. I swore I wouldn't. I would stand right beside you, a promise out of arrogance that I thought was righteousness. I thought my strength could overcome any possibility of weakness. But I didn't think I would have to claim the blasphemer. I thought I would be claiming the revolution starter. I didn't know how it would feel to stand on a street corner with the mob that yelled to kill you. I was ready to fight, not to be a bystander, awaiting the fate that was about to take you. I'm not making excuses except to say this didn't feel like what you promised or explained. I was still waiting for the battle cry, for you to break the chains. But if I knew then what I know now, I would have shouted from the crowd, praise to my Lord unashamed of his name. I watched you die from a distance, betrayed you. The veil was torn and darkness ensued. I thought we had been defeated. I felt ashamed by my rejection and yet justified in my forethought, in my feet being washed, in my words betraying. But if I knew then what I know now, I would have known how deep a betrayal mine was as I did when you awoke from the grave, conquering death once and for all, conquering death, the very thing of which I was afraid, conquering death, 
conquering this world, the very thing I had worshipped, not to defeat it, but to heal it. Heal those I still wanted defeated. I thought you had abandoned, and yet you were the greatest victor. If I knew then what I know now, I would have known the Lord's path would soon be my own. Death in submission to the Father, I would get the chance then to go and his name proclaim. If I knew then what I know now, I would have known the path was of rocks and a thorn was of crowns. The glory comes from laying down. If I knew then what I know now, I would have known my Lord. The one I betrayed had his heart broken every time we pushed away the poor and sick. The little children from coming to him. But he made a way, a way I had to learn to follow. For it is not my own. But freedom only comes in enslavement to this gospel. This gospel, the one that touches the very depths of people's souls, the very cores of people's bodies are made whole, can't manage to stay broken because his holiness restores everything. Even the atoms rise up and sing that night before his death. My Lord was washing my feet. I let him. That was the man my Lord was, a king who knelt before men. And I let him. And if I knew then what I know now, I would have gotten lower still to the ground and washed and kissed his feet like the woman did. A prostitute I judged, she knew before I did, and took perfume, the chance to extravagantly bless, unashamed and unimpressed with the power of the Pharisees, undignified and now fully free. I get it now. Lord, I do. And if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have betrayed, wouldn't have slept while you prayed, while you wept. My Lord, the one I betrayed, I wouldn't have argued over who was first. I would have sat with the meek and lost, knowing I was one of them, inhaling your every word. If I knew then what I know now, I would have cried, My God, my God, why have I forsaken you when you have not forsaken me? Instead, you turn away from the perfect one, him who came on my behalf. How did you forsake your son? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried so that I didn't have to. So why, why did I forsake you? My feelings now, a mixture of this shame, this pain, and yet holding on to this grace, this place feels holy now. I look back and hear my battle cry. I remember saying, let me hear the trumpets, let's march around Jericho until the walls come tumbling. But if I knew then what I know now, I would cry the battle cry of the Lord and slay evil with goodness and not with the sword. Powerful, huh? My God, my God, why have I forsaken you? What's going on for Peter? Why can't he stand up for Jesus? He was clearly sincere. He wanted to stay true. I believe it. But it shows there's a difference between what we say and what we think with our minds and the commitments we make and the directions of our hearts. There's something deeper in us, what we actually love first and foremost. And that isn't changed by just committing ourselves harder. Our hearts need to be transformed. The direction of our hearts have to move towards Jesus. 
Because we deep down love other things more than Jesus, every one of us. The theologian James K. Smith describes it this way. He says, our, our lives are like a compass, our hearts are like a compass, and we're designed to focus on true north, which is Jesus. But if we truly look at the compass of our hearts, we deviate. Our hearts are pointed towards other things. We think deep down will satisfy us more than Jesus. We're sinners, we're idolaters, seeking life apart from God, and trying hard doesn't change the direction of our hearts. So what does change the direction of our hearts? How did Peter get from Mark 14 to Acts chapter 4? Well, I want to just highlight quickly the path to a Christ-centered life, That three things that I think were significantly important, in fact, most important in Peter's life to move from Mark 14 to Acts chapter 4. Three steps. Step number one is brokenness. Having your eyes opened to reality. Notice verse 72. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And my translation says, and he began to weep. That's a terrible translation. Uh, there's another verb in there. They don't know how to translate, but it's, it's literally he threw upon and wept. Usually threw upon what? Threw what upon what? He doesn't tell us. But what you get a picture of is, is a violent physical response to being exposed, remembering what Jesus said and realizing I have utterly betrayed my Lord. And I think he probably threw himself on the ground and wept like a baby. Why? Because he's finally broken. He's finally seeing what he is really like. You see, biblical brokenness is to face the fact, to have your eyes open to the fact you are a mess. <laughs> A sinner who's prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. We all need to get there. We all need to be broken. We all need to see what we're really like apart from Jesus. And if we don't, we'll never be broken and we'll never make that transformation from self-dependence because we think we can still do it to God-dependence. I want to highlight again, I, uh, I mentioned this. Not fairly often, I think, but I see the same pattern in the Apostle Paul as you see him moving from a place of understanding himself as, yeah, kind of a sinner to chief of sinners. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this about himself, and this is about A.D. 50 as he was beginning his ministry where he says, then Jesus appeared to James. He's describing the resurrection. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, Paul says. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But he gave me his grace. There, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be an apostle. The book of Ephesians was written close to five years later. So around A.D. 55 or a little later, maybe 60. 
And there in the book of Ephesians, here's how Paul describes himself in chapter 3, verse 7, of which, talking about the gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the gospel. So as Paul grows, he says, I don't deserve to be an apostle. (laughs) Now he says, I don't even deserve to be a saint. I'm the least of the saints. And then near the end of his life, maybe four or five years later, in the book of First First Timothy, as he's writing to Timothy near the end of his life in chapter 1, verse 15, he says this, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am, not was, I am foremost of all, chief of sinners. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience towards us who believe. You see, that's biblical brokenness. It's, it's this sense of as you get closer to Jesus, you see more what you're really like and how desperately you need him every second. There's a commercial out these days. You may have seen it for a smartphone camera that's so awesome because you can take pictures at night. But what you see in this commercial is people partying, having a great time in the darkness. But when the lights get turned on, things don't look so good. So I don't know why you'd want a camera that, you know, actually shows things as they really are. But that's the way it is in our relationship with Jesus. The closer we get to him and his holiness and we get to see him for who he truly is, it opens our eyes to what we are really like and what a mess we are. You see, the light of his life shows your sinfulness and your desperate need for him every second. That is biblical brokenness. And I don't believe we can make that transition to dependence on him and having him be our true north unless we face the reality of our own hearts. Step number one, brokenness. Step number two is embracing mercy. When you see what you're really like, you know you don't deserve his love. You don't deserve his forgiveness. You don't deserve to be in his presence at all. And yet, mercy is God embracing us in our brokenness. There's an amazing passage over in chapter 16 of Mark as the resurrection has happened and Mary, the two Marys are at the tomb and they're there and they run into an angel And verse 5 of chapter 16, it says, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, Don't be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. And then he says this, But go, tell his disciples. Get this. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Go tell Peter that I want to be with him in Galilee. Go tell Peter he's not lost. Go tell Peter I still want him. 
That's mercy. And if you want to really have your heart changed to know Jesus and learn to love him first, you've got to embrace mercy. His ears are now open to the love of Jesus. In 1 Peter, Peter writes this. He's learned a lesson from this. And he says this in verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. (laughs) Peter's been so gripped now by the mercy of God. I don't deserve it. I know it. I'm a betrayer. That's who I am. And yet, you've granted me your great mercy. (laughs) I'm struck by how often I refuse to embrace mercy. It's offered freely, but I too often, and I see many of us doing the same thing, We want to be able to handle life on our own. We don't want to come to Jesus bankrupt and say, I can't do it, and all I can depend on is your mercy and nothing else. So what I tend to do, and what many of us, I think, tend to do, is we try to work it out on our own. And so we either just feel bad for being caught, and we think if I feel bad enough, maybe it'll work it up so I can be better next time, or we get mad. We get mad at ourselves. You idiot. You Why'd you do this? You you know, or we get mad at someone else, someone to blame. But it's simply our way of trying to stay in control instead of embracing mercy. When we do those things, it's just a way to try to feed our own pride, to stay in control, so we don't have to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Brothers and sisters, let's not do that anymore. Let's learn to embrace mercy and have an attitude of, Lord, I am a sinner. I'm a mess and I can't handle life. And unless I depend on you every moment, I'm lost. But thank you that you died for me. You love me and you still want me. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell Jackson. Go tell Susan. Go tell tell Sarah, go tell Tom, go tell Fred, go tell you, fill in the blank, fill in with your name. I want to be with you. That's what he says to us. Can we embrace mercy? Can we surrender our own will to his and embrace mercy? That's step two. So Peter first Of all, as his eyes opened and he's broken as he faces the reality of his own heart and then he embraces mercy and he has his ears open to the truth and then he softens his heart as he learns that not only does Jesus still want him, but Jesus calls him to serve. Remember that wonderful passage in John 21 as Peter's with the risen Christ, with the disciples. They're on the beach, and Jesus makes breakfast for all the disciples. And then Jesus takes Peter aside and talks to him specifically. And he asks him three questions, three denials by Peter, three questions by Jesus. And he says this, Peter, do you love me? Agape is the Greek word he uses. Do you agape me? Do you love me enough to die for me? What would the old Peter have said? Yeah, I can do it. (laughs) The broken Peter says, Yes, Lord, I phileo you. I love you as a brother. (laughs) 
I have an affection for you. That's all I can say. A second time, Jesus says, Peter. Oh, and and Jesus says, feed my sheep, right? A second time, Jesus says, do you agape me? Do you love me enough to die for me, Peter? Peter says, you know I don't love you that way. He says, what he actually says is, yes, Lord, I, I phileo you. I have an affection for you. That's all I can say. The third time, oh, Jesus says, tend my lambs. The third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you, do you have an affection for me? Do you love me as a brother? Peter says, yeah, yeah, that's where I am, Lord. That's all I can say. Jesus says, tend my lambs. You see, he's given ministry. He's called to ministry because now Jesus says, yeah, you're not the tough guy that's saying I can pull it off. You're broken. And now you are qualified for ministry. Now I can do things through your life, Peter, (laughs) because you've been broken. And so Peter describes himself in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, verse 1 of each. He says, I'm Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I don't think he's claiming anything prideful. He's saying, I'm a sent one. That's what apostle means. I'm a sent one. I still get to minister. I still, he still wants to use me. You see, having our hearts in tune with Jesus comes from we. When we are broken, we face our own sinfulness, but we embrace his mercy. And then we find when we don't deserve it, we don't deserve to have a part in his kingdom at all. He wants to use us to impact the world for Christ. Peter's heart has been softened to want to love others as he's been loved, to show mercy to others as he's been shown mercy, to declare and proclaim the good news. That Jesus meets us in our brokenness. Brothers and sisters, that's the path for shifting our hearts from self to Christ to living more fully for him. It's not a one-time event. Peter still has to be broken. He still has a process to go through. We all do. But this was very significant in his life. And I think he kept coming back to it because he knew this is the process, an ongoing process of being broken, facing your own failure and sinfulness, of embracing mercy, the incredible mercy undeserved of God, and then being called to be used by him. Behind me is a beautiful mosaic cross made of little broken bits of glass, pottery. It's, it's beautiful, and it's what Jesus does with our lives, right? He He takes our brokenness, our failure, our betrayal of him over and over because our hearts are loving other things besides him. And he takes it and he he says, if you embrace my mercy, I'll, I'll fit you in to the cross in a way that you can reflect my light right where you are, where you fit in the body of Christ with everyone else. And as I fit all these broken people and broken pieces together, the kingdom of God is proclaimed. The cross shines forth in a world that needs to see it. He makes something beautiful so we can together reflect the light of Christ to the world in our brokenness. Let's pray. How amazing you are, Lord, that your love is beyond comprehension, that you 
see us as we really are. You gently show us as we really are. And you embrace us. May we learn to embrace your mercy. That we might be set free from all this posturing and committing and trying to do it ourselves. That we might learn true dependence on your incredible grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.